0: You are now listening to Brews with Biologists. Welcome to Brews with Biologists. I'm your host to toast, Marla Steele. I'm here today with my friend, Dan Barlin. Dan is from Washington and he specializes in raptors. Uh, among his interests, he also enjoys hiking and...
1: Well, I enjoy camping, uh, kayaking, canoeing, and bicycling.
0: Interesting. So uh, essentially, you like going outside a lot.
1: Oh, yeah. You bet I do. You bet I do.
0: Uh, That's a novel trait for biologists, right? (laughs) Well, I think
1: that's one of the reasons we choose the field of of wildlife biology. We like getting outdoors and interacting with nature.
0: Yeah, that that was always my dream. It's like I was getting out of high school and it was, okay, I want to avoid business. I want to avoid politics and I want to get paid to go camping. I did not manage to avoid the business and politics, but yeah, I occasionally get to pay to go camping. So you know, I'll I'll take it. It's more often good than not. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, you know, uh, when I got my master's degree at Eastern Illinois University, I my research was on the breeding birds uh, of the floodplain forest, the bottomland forest, and so I would walk the uh, forest lands alongside of the river uh, and periodically through the spring while the birds were singing and document, uh, their occurrence over, over several months time. And also we, my advisor and I made two canoe trips down the river. So I got to go canoeing as part of my master's degree, which was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs>
0: so most people would think that like of all the things that you would do if your supervisor, like you would get coffee or maybe have a meeting, but Canoeing isn't really what you would consider a norm. Was it awkward? Was it fun? Did it build a sense of camaraderie?
1: Uh, it, it built a little <laughs> bit of a sense of com- camaraderie. <laughs> I remember this was the summer in in, in, in in South Central Illinois or East Central Illinois. It was very hot. And uh, uh, he had to stand outside his car and wait for me. And he kidded me. Oh, what are you trying to bake me or what? You know. But we had a good time <laughs> <laughs> while I was getting ready to go with him to the river, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it, it it helped a lot. He was, uh, you know, um, a great guy and uh, it, it did help build a little relationship between us to actually do do that kind of field work together. It was great, his name was uh, Barry Hunt. Barry Hunt. Dr. Barry Hunt, yep.
0: yeah. Yeah, those relationships are important. That was one of the first things I learned is when you look into a graduate program, not only look at the program itself, university and what they specialize in but the person that you're working with you're working with side by side for possibly over six seven years mm-hmm. and they're not just your supervisors or your teachers i mean they're your, your mentors
1: yeah and it has to be someone you're comfortable with yeah. you, you want to make sure uh, of that and i certainly found that for both my master's and my phd
0: it's always seemed to be like you're carrying a sense of legacy like you're leaving your advisor's lab, but you're carrying his legacy with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So overall, how long have you been in the game?
1: Uh, 43 years.
0: 43 years. Wow. That's.
1: I'll turn 67 uh, November 25th of this year.
0: (laughs) Well, congratulations. (laughs) Yeah. So this year being 2019. 2019. (laughs) All right. So over 40 years, that's, Yeah. Uh, and this that much time dedicated to biology. How when did you first know that you wanted to do this?
1: Well, uh, let's see. I uh, was a Boy Scout, and well, I started in Cub Scouts and then went into Boy Scouts. Uh, Cub Scouts, of course, in grade school, and then on into Boy Scouts, middle school and high school. We had a really good troop, and we got out and went camping, and I uh, became an Eagle. Scout, and and through that process, uh, you get you need twenty one merit badges. So Ooh. I got the nature study merit badge and the reptile study <laughs> merit badge, and I must have been I didn't get the bird study merit badge, and I'm not sure why, but uh, really, <laughs> I got a few others uh, in that field, environmental science and things, and mm-hmm. that really uh, piqued my interest, and and so when I graduated from high school in 1970. Um, By the way, I was in the third of my high school class that made the top two thirds possible. Oh. (laughs) I wasn't a real motivated student in high school, uh, (laughs) you know? And and so um, I was able to get into college, but Mm -hmm. I had to go to summer school first to prove myself, which I did. And uh, given my uh, interest and my scouting background, I decided to major in zoology, which is the study of animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I, I kept it you know, broad, of course, at that point. Um, it seemed to be where my heart was. And so um, I majored in zoology and several years into it, I took a course in ornithology, which is the study of birds. Uh, right. And that really piqued my interest. And uh, I thought, man, this is for me, you know. And within the bird uh, realm, raptors are a very special subset of the total. And uh, as I first got into you know the field and the, my interests, i I knew that I thought uh, my favorites were the raptors, but I didn't do very much about it. But that's mm-hmm. where got started. And so uh, after uh, I got my bachelor's degree, um, I thought, well, Uh, I think I'll get a master's in zoology. And from there, I could maybe go into a a wildlife career or I could maybe become a teacher with a Mm -hmm. master's degree. Uh, And so I went back to the same university, Eastern Illinois, for my master's, got my bachelor's in 1974 and my master's in 1976. And at that point, I decided to pursue a teaching career, I thought it might be a good idea to go on for my PhD. I was married. My wife and I got married between my bachelor's degree and master's, and, and she had just finished a, a degree in uh, education. So mm-hmm. she wanted to be a teacher and did become a teacher. Uh, so I took the graduate record exam uh, score um, as I finished my master's degree, and I didn't do well. I didn't do well uh, on it. Uh, I, I, in particular, the quantitative um, mm-hmm. component, um, right. I'm challenged in that area. I'm not learning disabled, but I process math slowly. And uh, so I didn't do well. And I thought, well, all right, um, I'll just go a different direction. And so I applied and got a job as a community college biology instructor and mm. really enjoyed that. So I went into that.
0: Yeah. I don't think I know of any biologists who were excited about taking their GRE. Uh, That's an entirely different topic as far as the importance of testing versus actual real life experience and the ability to transfer real life skills into meaningful research in a career and the ability to pursue it. But I guess that's kind of just seen as one of those parts of the educational gauntlet that you just have to... Try your best on and go forward.
1: Right, get over that hurdle. And Eastern Illinois University didn't require a graduate record exam score mm-hmm. at that time, so mm-hmm. I went back to Eastern to get my master's, and uh, went on to a career in community college teaching, which I did enjoy. And I started an ornithology course mm-hmm. uh, there that uh, was was not part of the curriculum, and uh, I, I enjoyed that. The students did. But as the years went on, I decided, you know, this raptor thing is really for me. And so I got into banding uh, raptors. I was an apprentice under a master bander, and I was banding great horned owls and red-tailed hawks And uh, where I was teaching in Iowa, Mm
0: -hmm. uh,
1: Iowa Western Community College in a little town called Clorinda, and enjoying that. And over a number of years' time, I became a master bander myself, and I thought, you know, I think I want to go back for my PhD. I want more training. Uh, I'd like to get pursue a degree in uh, where my dissertation, my research was on a bird of praise. So I could. So um, in 1985, I retook the graduate record exam, uh, or no, 1980, 1980, and once again, I didn't do well. Didn't do well enough. So I tabled it and. Continued on with my teaching and doing field biology, banding uh, owls and hawks in the area, and doing some research that way. And and but but by 1985, I decided I really want to pursue this PhD. So this GRE is not going to stop me. So what I did was I decided to study for it. Mm-hmm. So I got uh, some study manuals. I took practice tests. Uh, every week for a month in the lab where i was teaching just mock tests and i could score myself and i could see you know actually on top of that i retook uh i retook um algebra took algebra one algebra two trigonometry calculus one and two at the college where i was teaching Uh, so Hmm. i did all that got the practice tests and I got a score above that 50th percentile and got into Iowa State. So, if you ask me what my <laughs> biggest break was, it was uh, getting over the hurdle with a graduate of record exam score. So, by 1985, I had a minimum score that was acceptable at Iowa State University, mm-hmm. and uh, I had was in communication with my uh, who would become my advisor there, and I said, "Well, I want to wait another." year or two because I've got young kids and, uh, I, I want, and, and he was fine with that. So in 1987, the family moved a hundred miles from Clarinda, Iowa to Ames, Iowa. And I started my PhD. And at that point, my kids were three. My, my daughter, Kathy was three and my son, Charlie was six. And my wife was a teacher had been teaching and she got a job in at the, in the community and the, in the Ames public school. So everything mm-hmm. was very, everything was right.
0: Yeah. So So, to kind of take a step back, uh, you said that you trained to become a master bander. How do you even go about training for that? And what is a master bander?
1: Uh, Okay. Um, Well, uh, you apprentice under somebody to get the skills to learn uh, how to handle the birds, whatever species they might be, whether they're raptors or songbirds, how to uh, how to capture them safely, how to handle them safely, how to put the bands on the birds, um, how to keep proper records. Uh, and you need to be working, you know, with someone in order to do that. My my uh, mentor there, his name was Dean Rosa in the state mm-hmm. of Iowa. Um, and he lived uh, not, uh, quite a long ways away, a uh, hundred or so miles. And back then at the time, that I became uh, a master bander and had to pursue this. uh, There wasn't as much oversight by the federal bird banding lab, and I was able, but frankly, relatively minimal supervision, achieve the master bander uh, classification. Mm -hmm. And I've continued to band all the years through my career. And nowadays, uh, there's more scrutiny of people as they enter the program because one when you're an apprentice under somebody you have it's called a sub permit Mm -hmm. um if you get a sub permit you have to be good enough with the the process of the process of uh you know capturing the bird and and handling the bird and banding and all that that you could do it on your own without uh without anyone else you're you're the uh independent Um,
0: so, so I imagine if you look at a bird of prey, especially like say, for instance, an eagle, they have those really sharp talons. Yeah, uh, I'd imagine that'd be dangerous sometimes if you were not paying attention.
1: That's for sure. And there are certain ways to handle them, uh, and and to wrap them up uh, in order to protect yourself and, of course, pre- uh, protect them. So we have certain techniques. The main one is we put a hood on. There's mm. a, it's just like a helmet over that goes over the beak and the head blocks their vision and they really calm, calm down. And that's, that's the primary thing that we do. Um, and then you can wrap the wings up, use some Velcro and wrap around the wings. And so they don't flap their wings. And, um, so that's kind of it in a nutshell. There's, yeah, there's variations on that theme, but, uh, um, that's what we do.
0: So among the birds that you work with, uh, I keep coming back to eagles, but admittedly they are one of the most charismatic and impactful um birds of prey that i can think of yeah especially if you talk to say just somebody on the street like what's your favorite bird of prey and it's usually if i hear about it it's either an eagle or like say a peregrine falcon which Mm -hmm. they're amazing all on their own but can you describe for me like what does it feel like to hold one of those birds in your hand i mean you have the talons in hand you are looking into those piercing eyes that can see just far above and beyond your abilities, and you're holding a predator. You're a predator yourself, but you're holding this predator. Mm -hmm. How does that feel?
1: Well, you really have to focus uh, to secure them. So while you're going through that process, you're not really thinking too much about how special it is to be holding a bird like that at the beginning you have to focus on technique mm-hmm. and and but once you have the bird in hand and properly uh secured uh it, it, it's a very special experience and uh and I've trapped and banded and and uh tissue sampled uh, about 35 eagles over the years and uh the the power the strength that they have is just incredible you know yeah. and so uh, it, it, it's a emotional experience and I always have help uh, with the process and I often allow someone of one of the helpers to release the bird and and um, it's especially emotional for these people mm-hmm. that have never had a chance to do that before so
0: So maybe with those up close experiences if not you're like if you're not sparking the next generation of biologists, At the very least, maybe you'll be gaining some support for the general public that have a new appreciation for these birds. You bet. And when they look up into the sky and they see this large shadow flying overhead, Mm. maybe they'll ask, what is it?
1: You bet. You bet. uh,
0: So going into the field and trapping these birds and doing surveys, I imagine it doesn't always go smoothly. Uh, I understand it can get a bit messy, right?
1: That's right. That's right.
0: So out of curiosity, uh, what would be one of the most unusual or crazy things that you had to experience in the field? What's happened to you?
1: Okay. Well, I uh, trapped a bald eagle. I snared him by one toe. We have a certain kind of trap that we use, and we're uh, on the beach in western Washington where I have a nonprofit, Coastal Raptors, and uh, we snared this. Bird by one toe, uh, he was perched on a on a sign that said no clam digging. <laughs> and he, he came the off rules? the perch, went down for the the bait, and mm-hmm. got snared by one toe and promptly decided to fly mm-hmm. west toward Japan. You know, so he flew out about a hundred yards offshore and landed in the water. So he's snared by one toe. Imagine there's a a line about 20 feet long, uh, tied to the, the, the lure bait. Mm-hmm. And at the far end, there's a, a, a two tube wifers nailed together that and with a piece of lead slapped in between them. And that weighs five pounds. And he's uh, in the water. And eagles can swim. Most people don't know that. Mm-hmm. And he was swimming ashore. <laughs> and so I had to go out there and round him up. So I had, uh, along with me, um, I had a, a, a number of people, and I had a, a family from Sweden. Um, it was a, a husband, wife, and their son in his mid twenties. So I had him go out there with me, and I ran up to the bird, and and I had, I asked him to hold the string and keep it t- uh, taut while I walked closer and closer to the bird. We were only in water; it was about knee deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally, in a situation like this, when I snare. A bird by one toe uh on the on the sand uh as i approach they uh, try to get away and they fly they they walk they flap their wings they're uh, opposite me going the opposite direction and they wind up with their wings spread left and right lying on their bellies and looking back over their shoulder at me mm-hmm. so i can put my hand on their back and push them to the ground just And, uh, you know, uh, gently push them down so their belly's in the sand and then put my hands uh, under the body and grab the legs and bring them up. Well, this bird was in the water, so uh, (laughs) I couldn't do that. And I managed to get one leg. I don't even remember quite how. how, And he got me with the other one. Oh. Yeah, with the back claw. uh, The back toe is called the hallux. Mm -hmm. uh, And I had the hallux claw dug into my forearm about a quarter inch or so. So uh, we were able to bring him to shore, and this young man's mom happened to be a nurse, and so uh, that came in handy. But we had to pry that claw out, which took a little time. We used something called a cotter key mm-hmm. extractor, which was a plastic-handled tool with a, a metal uh, piece that... Uh, Imagine a cane uh, projected forward, and it had a hook on the end. So we we just hooked it. Imagine hooking a cane around a talon, I mean, a candy cane. You mm-hmm. know, imagine that. So we um, hooked that hook part around the talon and pulled very, very hard, and we were able to get that loose. And then she, we had some, you know, little antibiotic bi- and some bandages, and she took care of that. And then I. Got a few butterfly stitches <laughs> later Ooh. in the day. So so
0: your day comprised of, you have this bird in hand almost. He he decides to fly to Japan because obviously it's safer, better yeah. fish, and maybe yeah. he won't get uh, harassed by um, by raptor biologist. And then both you and him take a cold bath and mm-hmm. then you decide to arm wrestle.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what, pretty much what happened. <laughs> Just summarize. So, pretty much what happened, and and then while well, we had him in hand, of course, we we put the bands on him. Uh, we put a, a visual identification band on one leg, mm-hmm. and each one of those has its own unique alpha numeric code. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this case, I had a number of choices, and I chose B O. He was kind of a stinker, so <laughs> B over O. <laughs> Uh, so we put that on one leg and this this is a green band with b the letter capital letter b and the capital letter o up below it b above o below and the whole band stands about a half inch tall Mm -hmm. and wraps around the leg and we rivet it on and then on the other leg we put a silver u.s geologic survey band and that one has a a 1-800 phone number and a very long number that is amounts to the same thing as a social security number. It's the bird's own unique number, and that uh, that um, you cannot see that unless you find the bird, recapture the bird, or find the bird dead. Now, the other band, you can um, don't have to recapture the bird. You can read the the band through a spotting scope uh, or uh, through uh, these days primarily telephoto photography Mm -hmm. um and i have a wonderful uh canon camera with a 100 to 400 millimeter zoom and it's a great way to uh uh, identify birds that you've got banded um and so this bird has been recited it was banded in summer 2015 and it's been recited dozens of times over over the years since all seasons of the year so we know the birds have permanent resident we took Mm -hmm. measurements based on the measurements it was a male and it was an adult bird when we banded him and that meant that he was at least four years old because it Mm -hmm. takes four uh, on average um four to five years to reach the adult plumage so uh, sometimes in three sometimes in six uh but uh that generally speaking uh four might yeah, or, you know, four is the good minimum to say, uh, but sometimes even as young as three.
0: Um, mm-hmm. Anyway. So these are pretty long lived birds. Uh, yeah. Does the legacy of B.O. live on? Uh, yeah. Did you see him? Does he still kind of give you a dirty look when he flies by?
1: Well, I mean, uh, I've seen him in the last couple of weeks, you know. Really? Yeah. Because I do surveys regularly on the beach where he was caught, and uh, other people see him, and he's a favorite of many people. <laughs> he's a um and the folks that were with me uh was a a, a swedish couple and their son again mm-hmm. and then some of their relatives from the area where i now live which is outside of hoquiam washington <clears throat> and then a couple of volunteers from coastal raptors and the folks from sweden they call him bo
0: bo <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit nicer of a... Yeah, than B.O. Yeah, yeah, but a, to be fair, he didn't grab them, so... Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a fantastic story. So, I mean, obviously, in pursuing a career in biology, we have a lot of highs and lows, and there's a lot of effort that goes into that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I know of any biologist who hasn't had kind of... a H- a rough patch or a hard moment um, whether mm-hmm. it be personal or uh, emotional like we do we do deal with nature on a daily basis and we deal with trying to figure out this halfway point between say anthropogenic disturbance and people's needs for land and material and such and it can be a bit taxing tiring sometimes mm-hmm. uh sometimes we just have Hard things going on in our life, but we still have to go out at 4 a.m. and do these surveys because it's in the middle of the breeding season and we have to be consistent for science or whatnot. So, out of curiosity, what would you say is probably one of the hardest things you've had to deal with or your most challenging part of the work?
1: Um, Well, I would say uh, what saddens me uh, is finding out that one of my favorite banded birds has, has died, you know? So, uh, where I work, I've, I've banded about 250 peregrine falcons over the years on the Washington coast, about 35 bald eagles, about 50 turkey vultures. I have put wing tags on and then 10 common ravens. And some of these birds show strong site fidelity, fidelity, uh, meaning they tine, tend to hang around either the location where we originally banded them or somewhere else where we do our surveys. Mm-hmm. And uh, you get to know these birds a little bit, and you feel a connection to them. And sometimes uh, they turn up dead. Uh, most of the time, when, when we never see them again, um, uh, eventually we never see them again. I've been doing this for 20 years four years on the coast of Washington. Mm -hmm. Most of the time we have no idea what happened to them, but sometimes we find out that they're dead and we even find out why. So I had a favorite bird with the visual identification band of W over Z. Beautiful male, was very approachable, easy to capture, easy to come back and read his band with a spotting scope or take pictures. Um and recapture we treat try to recapture our birds once a year mm-hmm. to get additional blood and feather samples after we've originally banded them. And so this particular bird uh clipped a wire on the Washington Coast and was found dead by a young man and his grandfather, uh uh, you know, after he'd been he was about seven years old at the time. So that was uh, a sad one.
0: Yeah.
1: More recently, uh, I called out to pick up an eagle that was found unable to fly an adult eagle and this was uh so as a raptor biologist when birds go down people in my community know that they can call me and i'll help get them to a rehabilitation center so i went out to this farm where I, i i know the farm the landowners and things they they actually they actually came to my house and I was working in a yard, and they yelled uh, yelled out to me, and they said, "We got an eagle down." So they have pasture land, and um, yeah. I followed them out there, and we went uh, out, and here was an eagle uh, that clearly had flown into a a barbed wire fence that they have. They have pasture land, and and so I was able to round the bird up. I called the the veterinarian in our area that is a certified rehabilitator. And, um, it was a Saturday night and Mm -hmm. they were willing to take it nine o'clock the next morning. So I have a canvas carrier. I put the bird in and I had hooded the bird, um, to calm it. And I decided to keep the hood on overnight. Mm -hmm. And when I got back (laughs) the next morning, it was dead. So so that was a hard one for me. That's probably the hardest one,
0: yeah, that's um we do have those collisions with uh human yeah. outreach, but
1: yeah, so I was planning on driving the bird to the vet, mm-hmm. and I thought okay this this uh canvas carrier I'd set beside my vehicle, and I thought, well, I'm gonna pick it up." just pick it up by the handle. Mm-hmm.
0: And w- when I
1: did that, I knew that the bird didn't move. I knew it was dead in there. And I, I felt bad because I left the hood on and the veterinarian said, it probably didn't make a difference, but I really didn't need to keep the hood on the bird overnight. Uh, and, and I just, in the back of my mind, wonder if that might've made a difference. But the bird, the weight on the bird was uh, I think it 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 it, uh, it had pretty good body mass, but it probably was dehydrated mm-hmm. and who knows uh but it, it didn't make it and that's the hardest one in my career
0: that yeah. one. Well, I mean I guess the good thing is um we do see a lot of sad things like that um Uh, There it's nature in itself. We have injuries, we have losses, we see um, a lot of death. But I also know biologists are, are working towards trying to save these birds and minimize these impacts. And just having somebody go out there to pull this eagle out of a barbed wire fence is special. It would have been much worse for it to be stuck there. Yeah. And slowly died. And that's one thing that I'm curious about. Like, what would you say was your one of your greatest impacts? What have you've had opportunities to really do good? Well, what are one of the things that you're most proud of?
1: Uh, Well, I got the exceptional service award for the Raptor Research Foundation, which Mm -hmm. is a scientific society dedicated to. Providing information to the public and scientists, uh, the further understanding of birds of prey, and mm-hmm. I've been a member for forty years, and I volunteered in many capacities over those years. And in twenty eighteen, I got the award at uh, when the conference was in Kruger National Park, South Africa. So, oh, wow. that's uh, probably you know it for me getting mm-hmm. that award.
0: Yeah. So you spend all this time. Uh volunteering and working with young biologists it, i imagine it's a, a significant investment of both time and money and effort yeah why bother
1: uh well uh i want to make a difference mm. and i think that's a good way to do it i'm service oriented community oriented and uh, the raptor research foundation is so wonderful organization with over a thousand members, uh, people from 50 countries on six continents, and when I volunteer for them. Uh, I'm, my impact is broader than it would otherwise be. I've had a, a number of, uh, jobs over the years, and we really haven't gotten into that yet. How did I get from mm-hmm. Eastern Illinois University, to the Washington coast? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I just, uh, but it also allowed, has allowed me to, you know, learn from people. It's been my continuing education mm-hmm. over the years. Uh, I, I do I did get my PhD in 1991 and, you know, went on to work for many years. And just going to the conferences over the years, I've been to 28 Raptor Research Foundation conferences. Uh, my first one was uh, 40 years ago this year in Davis, California, in 1979.
0: Mm-hmm. So. All the birds of a feather got to flock together at least once a year, right?
1: Yeah, Yep. sometimes (laughs) more than once. Uh, Yeah.
0: So, like you mentioned, I mean, you were in Illinois, and now you're in Washington. Uh, What are you doing?
1: Okay, well, just to retrace my steps a little bit, Mm -hmm. uh, I got my bachelor's degree and and master's at East Illinois, and my I got started teaching community college, became a bander. Uh, and then went on to Iowa State University mm-hmm. and got my PhD uh, in 1991. <clears throat> and I was at the Raptor Research Foundation conference in Bellevue, Washington. I still hadn't found a permanent job in 1992. And I found out about this job uh, as a wildlife biologist for one of the big timber companies in Western Washington. And I was at the icebreaker, the night before the meeting got seriously underway. And I was having a beer and I was just talking to someone. And I said, uh, I I, went to Iowa State. And right then, uh, Bob Meyer from Rainier Timber was walking by and he said, oh, Iowa State. I got my bachelor's in forestry at Iowa State <laughs> in 1976. Would you like to hear about this job for a wildlife biologist with Rainier Timber? So mm-hmm. we talked that evening, um, and. Uh, I had breakfast with them the next morning, a long story a little shorter. I got the job, family moved out uh, in uh, summer of 93, and I've been there ever since. So I worked for Rainier as their wildlife biologist for 16 years, and I did have uh, raptor work in that capacity. For example, the spotted owl was one of the raptors that occurred on their several hundred thousand acres, about 400,000 acres of Timberland. And it was a a listed species, uh, a federally threatened species. I think it's state endangered in the state of Washington. Mm -hmm. Um, And they also had uh, northern goshawks on the property, which was uh, proposed for listing at the state and federal level and bald eagles nesting. At the time I started the job, they were on the endangered species list. They're no longer on the list. They mm-hmm. got removed in 1999. So there was raptor work. There was another bird called the marbled murailet, which is a seabird that nests in older forest. And and so I, I I worked to screen their timber for those species and help protect land forest land that needed to be protected mm-hmm. and uh, help facilitate logging of other lands and was involved in research. While I was working for the timber company, I started, uh, surveying for birds of prey, uh, on the coastal beaches, uh, driving a vehicle and starting in 1995 and surveying and catching and banning peregrine falcons. And at times, uh, a few of the other raptor species. So I, uh, so I did that, uh, on the side weekends, uh, mornings before work. Um, I got out about once a week. And then in 2009, I lost a job with a de- declining uh, economy. Mm-hmm. So I worked for him for 16 years, lost the job. And that's when I started the nonprofit Coastal Raptors. Uh, and so I, at that point, I uh, had time to get that uh, organization going. And um, that's been my focus ever since. I In the early years, I did some consulting back to little to the timber industry and uh and um, but mostly I've been doing coastal raptors for the last 10 years. So that's a little background. Um, so I've continued to do the driving surveys, documenting the occurrence of raptors on three beaches in Southwest Washington. Um, and so we uh, determine the species of the birds we see, their, their gender, their behavior, their age, and their habitat their location. And then if they're falcons, we try to capture and band them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as the years went on, I got a second study going where we, from a fixed location, we uh, we catch bald eagles, ravens, and turkey vultures for a study of avian scavengers. To uh, We sample them for contaminants and disease as a way to understand their overall health and their apex feeders. It actually reflects on the whole avian community as we do that mm. um, and also as a way to look at the risk to California condors there's a big interest in reintroducing the condors to the Pacific Northwest so um, I got some grant money to uh, to further the uh, to, to to this end to this research mm-hmm. and, and and so um, I started that part of the research in 2012 and wound up most of the data collection in 2016.
0: Yeah.
1: And then there's, if I might add, in 2018, we began a collaboration with Hawk Mop Sanctuary Association. They've had a turkey vulture migration study, t- turkey vulture tracking study. They initiated, I think it was about 83, where they put satellite transmitters on about 65 or 70 turkey vultures. To monitor their movements, um, you know, in North America down some into northern South America, mm-hmm. very special research. They had not put transmitters on birds in the Pacific Northwest in the summer. They had trapped some birds in Arizona in the winter. That uh, one or two that went up to the Pacific Northwest for the summer, but they wondered they wanted to trap some in in the Pacific Northwest. So we collaborated in 2018 with them and we had we put satellite transmitters on four turkey vultures. Uh
0: yeah. I remember the first time I held a turkey vulture. Uh we were having a walk-in trap and we my mentor took me out there and we had about 10 turkey vultures just perched in our trap, looking relaxed. Uh they had a carcass in there, they had water. Mm-hmm. It was just a small congress, so to speak. They were having a congressional hearing. Yeah. And uh I walked in and and oh my god that I, I i will always remember just they they're delightful birds they have those beautiful ivory bills and those striking heads but my god they have a certain funk to them which <laughs> i guess is fair enough they eat um they they scavenge they eat carrion for a living you, i probably mm-hmm. would not have very decent breath if i did either <laughs> but i mean they're very sweet tempered if you think about it like all right hey hey don't eat me Ugh. Yeah, Here, have my lunch instead. Like they literally just vomit at you. They and they, um,
1: You know, they, they have certain <laughs> behavioral mechanisms that they use to defend themselves, among those being projectile vomiting. Mm-hmm. Now, I've handled 45 or 50 of them. And when they're under the net, they just kind of hang their heads. They get into kind of a stupor. Mm-hmm. And I've never had the experience of having one vomit on me. As I've tried to get them out of the nest with their head hanging down, I've had them grow up downward toward the ground. But Mm -hmm. I've never seen that projectile vomiting. Another thing about turkey vultures out in nature, they have this habit of pooping on their legs. It's a a (laughs) cooling mechanism. And so because of that, the federal bird banding lab will not allow you to put uh, a band on the leg of a turkey vulture because it would get caught between the band and the leg and cause chafing, maybe break the skin, cause infection. So we put wing tags on these birds, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they're they soaring birds, and they can handle these these vinyl tags that have the codes. It's just the same kind of system we have with the visual identification leg bands. It's a alpha alphanumeric code, alpha meaning letter, numeric ne- meaning number, of course. Mm-hmm. So it's either a number letter or two numbers or two letters, some combination that can be viewed with a spotting scope or... Uh, you could take a photo with a telephoto lens and identify, you know, the individual.
0: So, yeah, Um, that's one of my goals. If when I'm talking to the general public or if I'm trying to talk to kids, it's like, all right, how many of you like turkey vultures? And by the time I'm done talking, I can get a few more hands up and I consider that a victory. Uh,
1: Well, they're beautiful in flight and I have almost no sense of smell.
0: mm -hmm.
1: I don't, I don't smell them. (laughs) I don't smell them.
0: Anytime something dies in the field, there is a chance to be a silver lining in the sky. Yeah. <laughs>
1: well, they're nature's recyclers. They're very important, and they're just beautiful soaring around, and they're very intelligent birds. They're hard to trap. They're If you have a walk-in trap, and uh, I think in most cases, they get a non-releasable bird from a rehabilitation center to put in the trap first, and then they feel safer, and they'll go in. That's a very good way to trap them.
0: Right. Yeah. You have that flock mentality. Yeah. So overall, you have been at this for over 40 years. Obviously, over the past four decades, we've had a lot of changes in the field. We've gone from just walking in uh, road-based surveys to using VHF transmitters. And we have biologists running around with these giant antennas trying to catch maybe one or two um, triangulated coordinates for, to look at, like, say, animal movements. Fast forward to the 2000s on up, we have these backpacks, um, these tiny little maximum 70 gram backpacks that act like um, GPS trackers, which data has the ability, it communicates with these satellites, and depending on what type of tracker you have, it could actually even transmit data through, say, GSM cell towers, and you have, uh, essentially, you would receive a text from a turkey vulture. We've had this massive overchange of uh, technology, public attitude, uh, resource requirements. With technology itself, we've had a increased population, and we've had um, variations in funding and support. Uh, I know we have a lot of bio- early career biologists. We have students coming out into the field, and they tend to be a bit overwhelmed with their career track. How are they going to find a job and just what sort of advice would you give students or early career biologists just entering the field for the first time in this day and age?
1: Well, uh, first thing that comes to mind is to go to conference and network with people. And uh, through that, you can find opportunities. Uh, And often organizations will have price breaks for young people. Uh, Today with Airbnbs, you don't have to stay in the the fancy hotel. If you do, uh, you you can get one or more roommates to cut your costs. Uh, And usually are registration breaks uh, for students. And I know in the Raptor Research Foundation that I'm so uh, familiar with and active in, uh, we're doing a great job there to uh, try to Step forward and help students, uh, young people. So that would be my advice: is to network that way um, and find some opportunities to gain experience in the field. Uh, you might have to volunteer for a while or work for low pay, but that's just the way it goes. I think that's one of the big problems in our field: is that uh, there are lots while there are lots of opportunities really for people to work, there's a very large number of them that either don't pay at all or they pay just living expenses or very low wages. So if there are one thing I'd like to see improve it would be for a better pay uh, for entry-level field biologists um, because they're they're, they're, they're needed.
0: All right. If we don't have a fresh crop of talent coming in year after year, I mean, eventually we all, we all age and we all retire and we need to invest in the future generations mm-hmm. and we need to make sure that we have opportunities uh, for them. And one of them, just that ability to feel secure and they can pursue a passion but it, and do some good, but at the same time, Know that they're going to have a meal lined up next week.
1: You bet. And some some of these young people wind up for years uh, going from one part time job to another. Um, And so I think to some extent that you know it's necessary. Uh, It's just the way it is. Uh, But um, at some point, people have to cut that off, and a lot of people leave the field because they just haven't been able to make it, which I think is getting now back to the, what I said earlier about going to conferences, meeting people over a period of several years, you, you begin to be known, you begin to become comfortable with people. They get to know you and, and, and that's where uh, opportunities can, can arise, Mm -hmm. you know, to get it, get you uh, someone uh, out of this rut that often occurs which tracks people out of the field commonly
0: right so aside from um the possibility of higher wages what do you think needs to change in the field of biology in the future
1: well uh i don't know what to say about that uh, off the top of my head i i would say uh more public support i'd like to see more effort toward educating the public Mm -hmm. so that we get their support for the things we're trying to do. Um, because I think today in today's world, there is, um, a lot Mm of, um, skepticism about science Mm -hmm. and. Uh, A lot of distrust has been built up in particular in recent years. And so I'd like to see more (laughs) education, you know, and I think this podcast is probably a a good start in the right direction. But uh, and educating the public is really uh, fun and it's not that difficult um, because we have at our disposal the world of nature to share. And there are wonderful photographs out there that uh, many of us take uh, or can find uh, (laughs) uh, out there available. And we can give programs using PowerPoint or speak to school groups. Uh, But I think, um, you know, I'd say I'd like to see more outreach and education um, to help bring about uh, public support to help fund initiatives out there. To, uh conservation initiatives, and things like that.
0: Okay. So if the general public itself, it seems like one of the issues that we have today is there's a lot of sources of news and information that are not actually correct. Uh, peer-reviewed aside, where you have information that has been put through a rigorous cycle by experts in the field that have looked for any flaws in the logic or reasoning or mm-hmm viewpoints that the authors of the research might have missed, we we seem to have just a string of inaccurate information. So if somebody that's not trained as a biologist wants to look for information, uh, like say, for instance, on eagles or um, danger sea eagles mm-hmm. or where they live or migrate, where would they find this information?
1: Very good question. My best recommendation is to go to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, Mm. their website. Um, They've been around for decades and decades and since the beginning, you know, uh, and they have uh, a large number of avian ecologists and they have a wealth of information there. And um, uh, so that would be my recommendation. I have a website too. Um, It's relatively small. Mm -hmm. very small compared to that. And I do, uh, I try very hard to have everything that I share on my website, coastalraptors.org, accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it is, uh, but I don't have, uh, you know, for example, I'm a very small nonprofit. I'm the executive director. There's really no staff. I work with volunteers. I have a database consultant that we pay to analyze data, but you know there is no one really looking over my shoulder uh, that uh, on a regular basis to pick up errors there might be in what i what i share i work mm-hmm. very hard and when somebody says hey go to your website you you know you identified that that's, that's not a a western gull that you Have in your notes (laughs) from the field, that's a glaucus winkle. I I try to fix those errors. But if you go to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, you you can't do any better than that. And there's wonderful resources there. So uh, another strong one uh, uh, is the Peregrine Fund website. Mm -hmm. And they have a very large staff, very competent uh, group. And the Raptor Research Foundation also. Uh, These are big organizations that. Uh, involve many people that are carefully monitoring the information that's there. So that would be my recommendation.
0: Excellent. So just as a recap, folks, if you want to find more information about birds, raptors, and the like, for accurate information, you can check out resources such as Cornell Lab of Ornithology websites, Coastal Raptors, or the Peregrine Fund. Uh, These are all organizations that like Dan and I are dedicated towards the research and conservation of birds, so be sure to check those out. If you have any other questions, please feel free to email us at info at too. We can send you in the right direction and answer all your questions as needed. Uh, Dan, one thing that I wanted to know before we end and get another cup of coffee, what do you want to do in the future? What's your goals?
1: Well, I've been doing this monitoring of raptors on the Washington coast uh, going on 25 years now so uh, what I want to do in in the future is work to get more of the data that I've collected over these years out in the published peer-reviewed literature and I've got two three papers in mind in particular and then uh, after that I I would like to maybe do a popular book for people mm-hmm. that for the public on the wonderful Raptor resource that I've been studying for th- for the last 40 plus years
0: so interesting all right so it sounds like you have a lot to keep you busy I sure do <laughs> excellent well once again Dan thank you so much for being here uh listeners this is Dan Varland he is the executive director of Coastal Raptors you can catch his website at coastalraptors.com uh Dan thanks again you want to go get another cup of coffee
1: let's go do it
0: until then. Cheers. Brews with Biologists is a production of Eris Odysseys, a nonprofit dedicated to the conservation and research of aerial migrant species, as well as a proud supporter of career biologists. If you'd like to support this podcast, Eris Odysseys, and the guests, you can donate on our website at erisodysseys.org donate. If you specify the episode number, 50% of the proceeds will support that guest in their projects and endeavors. Thank you for listening